Thank you for being here. I'm excited to teach. What we've been doing is we've been in this session uh, for now this will be our third week on what I'm terming a hermeneutical approach to better Bible study. It's one way that we can heighten our game by deeper and better understanding of scriptures by understanding what is technically called a hermeneutical approach. Now I'll explain that again for people who are new uh, this morning. But first, I can't go through class without giving a special shout out to Bill Glass. Now you may be saying, who is Bill Glass? No. Bill Glass is the head of IT at the Lanier Law Firm. I um, get up every Sunday morning early and I get my trusty laptop out and I do the PowerPoint for teaching this class on Sunday morning. That way it's fresh in my head. And I work through the material again by making the PowerPoint. And I got up this morning at 3.23, excited because I get to do this PowerPoint and teach this class. And I open up my laptop and the screen is blank. There's nothing, no anything. Thinking, I'd had power when I went to bed last night, but just in case. So I try power, nothing. And I'm like, okay, this is not good. God's not supposed to let this happen because I'm too many of y'all pray for me and pray for this class for this to happen. I mean, Tim, were you not on your knees about this? Because you typically are. So, Miss Carolyn, where were you on this prayer chain? So I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, Bill Glass is on his anniversary vacation. He's the, he's, he's the head of IT, so he's the only guy I deal with. I don't know all the folks who work under... I mean, I know them, but I don't know their contact info. And so I'm sending out an email, and I'm adding Bill to it, but I'm sending out a text and saying, you know, I, I've, I've got a problem. i got to teach. And after church today, I leave for England. And i got to have, like, a computer. I can't go. I mean, this is my life. This is my work. This is my everything. And um, I get this text message from Bill Glass at 4.09 this morning that says, Hey, let me call you and see if I can work through a, a hard reboot of your computer. I'm like, What are you doing awake? He said, I have a stomachache. And I can't sleep. And I thought, yes, God's answering y'all's prayers. Sent a stomachache to Bill Glass. Woke that sucker up. Bam! Here we go. So, he tries to walk me through a hard reboot. It doesn't work. I'm like, okay. And he says, don't worry. We keep a spare that's always hooked into the cloud. Has all your accounts up to date at the law firm. Where are you? I said, I'm in the office. He says, I'll be there in 20 minutes with a spare. So, special shout out to Bill Glass this morning. Appreciate you, Bill. And I hope your stomach feels better. Your assignment for this week was to think about these biblical themes. The temple, the sacrifice theme, and the love story theme. 
And then I added one more just in case we had time to get to it, giving. Now, I was talking to Dr. David Capes about this on Friday. And as I was working through some of it, I realized if you have done all of this homework, then you are ahead of class. Because today, we're not going to be able to do much more than the temple. The temple is too important a biblical theme. And it's one that is foreign to us in so many ways. And so I want us, welcome back, I want us to deal with the temple theme and let's just spend a class on it because this could be a series. I could do an easy 10 weeks on this. If you've ever gone to Jerusalem, I am certain you went to the Western Wall. It's also called the Wailing Wall. The Western Wall is all that remains of the temple that existed at the time of Christ. It is uh, uh, actually part of an extension to that second temple that was done in about 20 AD or so by King Herod. And so you've got this extension of the temple. And I want you to be thinking about that, but that's not the only temple I want us to be thinking about. In our hermeneutical approach... What we're doing is we're taking the Bible and looking at different themes and narratives that span the entire Bible. So remember, the Bible's not a book. The Bible's a library. It's a library of 66 different books. Of those 66 books, the Old Testament has 39. The New Testament has 27. In a Catholic Bible, you'll find 14 in the Apocrypha. But the idea behind a hermeneutic is an understanding that the 66 books are something more than just the individual parts. Like coffee is more than just an individual bean and an individual bean and an individual bean. And so scholars have this word hermeneutic. And hermeneutic is the study of methodological principles of interpretation. In other words... What is the method or the principles that I'm going to use to understand the scripture? And part of a hermeneutic is saying I will understand the scripture within the confines of large themes that are in that scripture. So they help guide my approach and the the results of my interpretation of scripture. Now, different people have different hermeneutics. And I don't think that there's one exacting hermeneutic, though at different times in my life I've probably taught that you know, we need a Christocentric hermeneutic. Well, we do, but that's not the only interpretation. This idea that you can make better sense of the Bible, the parts of the Bible, by understanding the major themes and storylines is one that's not siloed to just one hermeneutic or another or another. Uh, I'm using the term in a much broader, expansive way. That means I want to ask, what are the major storylines or themes in the Bible? And see if once we ask that, it doesn't enhance our study of specific passages. So toward that end today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start out with this question. What was a temple? Various times of the Bible. What was a temple? 
mean, we know a temple can be this part of your forehead. Obviously not. You can talk about going to a synagogue on Saturday morning and say you're going to temple, but there's a distinction there between a synagogue and a, and a biblical temple. So then after we look at what is a temple, then we can ask that second uh, uh, area, or look at that second area, the temple theme that's in the Bible. And I think you'll find it's present in passages you never dreamed of. Some of you at least. And then the third thing we'll do is we'll look at some points for home before we quit. So, let's start in the beginning. What was a temple? One of the hardest things for Bible interpretation is to understand the context of Scripture. Let me explain what I mean. We know you can't take one phrase out of context. For example, there's a passage in the Gospels where it says, we know that God does not hear the prayer of sinners. Well, if you just took that passage, you'd say, "Uh uh-oh, why am I praying? But if you take it in context... You see that that's not Jesus or one of his followers. That's that's someone who's trying to disprove the divinity of Jesus or the authority of Jesus, maybe a better way to say it. But this this is, you know, Jesus has healed a man and the man's being grilled by the authorities and they say, well, who did this? And he says, well, Jesus did, you know, he had prayed over me and God, and the, the authorities say, no, God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. And the man says, hey, you make your call. I'm just telling you, he prayed, I couldn't see, now I see. But I'll tell you that scripture teaches God does hear the prayers of sinners. That's the only prayers he can hear outside of Jesus. So one part of context we know, and that is just read the scripture, but read it in broader context. Okay? But there's a second part of context, and that's one that allows us to dig into the original languages. One of the reasons I took my degree in Hebrew and Greek is because I wanted to be able to take those verses in the Bible and dig into their context linguistically, not just in the context of how they're written in those verses, but linguistically the context, understand the language. But there's a, so, so for, let me give you an example. All. Pas in the Greek, all. Call in the Hebrew, all. We read all, and a lot of times we think absolutely everything. But if we know that word linguistically, we know that the word can mean all in the sense of everything or everyone within a group, or all in the sense of a bunch. Um, And we use the word all that way sometimes. You know, we can say, man, all the people showed up for this event. That's all within a group or a whole bunch. But when the Bible says all of Jerusalem went out to be baptized by John the Baptist, it doesn't mean every single person in Jerusalem went out to be baptized by John the Baptist. 
all can mean in the original languages a bunch or a group. And it can also mean every single solitary one. You've just got to get it in context. So we've got the context of the passage itself to study. We've got the context of the language. But there's a third important context that we need when we study scripture. And that is the context of the culture and the audience. Because the scriptures, though written for eternity, which includes us, were originally written within a culture for certain audience. And so that's the hardest part. I mean, we can get context of the passage just by reading the whole Bible. We can get context of the language by doing some language studies. But the cultural aspects of the original placement of these scriptures makes it a little more challenging to do that kind of study. And so we need to find good resources. We need to find the latest uh, uh, academic materials on this stuff. And we need to read it with a discerning mind because uh, everything that comes out in academia is not automatically right. So, having said that, don't think of temple as an ancient church. It wasn't. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't similarities. But the church that we've got, you've got all of these seats. A lot of churches have pews. Everybody's welcome. We go in there. We sing. We, we fellowship. We listen to the word of God. We um, uh, give of our finances and resources. Um, we pray for each other. We take communion together. Um, those things we do, but that's very different in some ways than an ancient temple. So go back to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was not a building for the people of God to come together to worship. Solomon's temple was God's house. And you didn't go into God's house unless you were mighty clean and pure. Even the priest had to sacrifice and purify themselves before they went in. And the inner room of God's house, nobody went in except the high priest. And he only got to go in once a year. The temple was not... A church where everybody came together. Now, people would come, but they'd be in the outer courts. Solomon said in 1 King 8, 13. Solomon said, I've indeed built you an exalted house. Bait in Hebrew. A house. A place for you, God, to dwell in. It was an earthly dwelling place. Of God, in a sense. Recognizing that uh, he continues to say, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. The place of which you've said, 
my name, my reputation, my character, my manifestation, my name shall be there. Now, this is not only a temple in Israel. If you go back to the time of Abraham and the ziggurat at Ur and other ziggurats in that area, they were built to be meeting places where the gods would descend to the hill, to the top of the ziggurat. And that would be a house that invites them down. If you go back to the Gudea cylinders, King Gudea was um, a king who was charged to build a temple. These cylinders read from about 2100 B.C. And um, Ningirsu was the god who told him, build a temple. And look what he says. Gudea, you were building, this is Ningirsu, the, the god speaking. You were building my house for me. That's what the temple was. A house for the God. You had my house shine for me. Like Utu in heaven's midst. Separating like a lofty foothill range. Heaven from earth. If you were to go back and tour some of the ancient tombs and ancient temples of Egypt... The tomb of Ramesses IV, which functioned like the temples as well. What they would do is in the ceiling, they would paint the moon and the stars and the skies. And then on the walls, they would paint humanity and plants and trees. With the idea being, the temple is the house, the meeting place of the gods who come down among the people. If you go back and read in Genesis the story about Jacob, Jacob's on the run from Esau. He stops at a certain place. He lays his head on a rock and he has a dream. And in the dream, there's a a staircase that goes up and down. Uh, It's translated ladder. It's probably more staircase. So think staircase. Staircase going up and down into the heavens. And angels are ascending and descending. Okay, this, by the way, oh, I didn't put this in here. This becomes absolutely incredible when you get to John. I hope, uh, throw something at me, Sharon, if I don't remember to say it when we get to John, if I've got time. So in the process of this, Jacob wakes up and Jacob says this. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid. You don't just go into God's house uninvited. He said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And This is the gate of heaven. This is where he comes down. This is his summer home. Jacob was not a great theologian. But that, and so he renames the house, I mean, renames that place Beit El. Beit means house, El means God. House of God. Bethel, we'd say if we were just renaming it in English. Beit El. House of God. 
Because he thinks that's God's place. Now, Israel goes into bondage in Egypt. And after a few centuries, they come back out. Moses brings them out by the power of God and the hand of God. They go into the wilderness. And God tells Moses, I want you to build me a tabernacle. You build it exactly the way I tell you to build it. The tabernacle is a portable temple. It's a tent temple. It's got tents that go all the way around it because you don't come into the house of the Lord unless you're invited. And God makes it clear. Nobody's coming in here who's not pure. And if the priests are going to come in here, they have to come in here and they have to purify themselves. And they can come in here to purify the people. And then there's another tent within it that's got the holy and then the holy of holies. And it's separated by another curtain. And God's saying this, that this is where God will meet with the people. This is going to be his home on the road. The temple RV. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar. And he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud. The cloud has been God's presence among the people. Leading them cloud of day by day and fire by night. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The temple. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter. He wasn't adequate to enter with the glory of the Lord there. This is the presence of God among people. The meeting place, if you will. Now, that's the temple of sorts, this tabernacle, this roving RV with the Ark and the Covenant especially until Solomon builds the first temple in Jerusalem. David wanted to build it, but David's not able to because he's got too much blood on his hands. And so David starts gathering together the supplies for the building, but tells Solomon it's going to have to be you. Solomon says, it gets to be me. But the temple that Solomon builds is viewed as the house of God. If you see Psalm 132, the Lord has chosen Zion, that's the hill where the temple is, he has desired it for his dwelling place. Then it says, This is my resting place forever. Remember that when we come back and start looking at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. By the way, forever, another one of those Hebrew words. Sometimes it means forever. Sometimes it means, hey, until something changes. (laughs) You know, I've been, I've been drinking Diet Coke forever. Not really. They didn't start making it until I was pretty old. Um, the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it. So this is Solomon's temple. And when it gets built, you've got the presence of God there among the people. 
Now the people turn evil and corrupt and sinful and they disregard God and they break covenant with God. And so the God who said, all things being equal, I'm here forever, does something profoundly different. In some ways, some of the hinge verses of the Old Testament, the, the Jewish Bible, are found in Ezekiel chapter 10. In Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel has a vision. And in this vision, the glory of the Lord, remember, the glory of the Lord descended on the tabernacle. It descended also on the temple when Solomon built it. The glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, the temple. Stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes. God left the presence that he had established in Israel. And Israel goes off into captivity. And the temple is destroyed. Now God had said this through the prophets. The minor prophets study. Along with the major prophets that we just did. The minor prophets we did. God had said this is coming. But I will bring a remnant back. And God does. And Ezra and others come. And they rebuild the temple. And that rebuilt temple over the next several hundred years gets better and better and better as more money is poured into it, more efforts poured into it. And by the time of Jesus' ministry, it's an incredible structure, this second temple in Jerusalem. Herod's additions have made it huge. Spectacular limestone used in the construction. You've got a massive court. You've got the temple itself with the the areas where people are not allowed, save the priests who are serving God, who are in there as servants of God. But Ezra starts this with Ezra 3.10. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The foundations of the temple of the Lord. They sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Quote, for he is good. This is what they're singing. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This is God's house. That's the concept behind the ancient idea of a temple. This is the house of God. This is the house of the Lord. This is where he dwells. This is his connection point with humanity. This is where humanity doesn't come in unless they're worthy. And so you've got that passage. And that is the temple that exists when Jesus is in ministry. And so you've got passages like Matthew 24. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, you know, they were like, man, because these bunch of hick, farmer, fishermen types from Galilee. I, it's not polite to call them hicks, but I'm from Lubbock. That's not necessarily a bad thing to be. And they're like, man, can you believe this to Jesus? And Jesus says, you see all these, right? Truly I say to you, 
there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And Jesus started telling them prophetically about the Roman overthrow of Jerusalem and the rebellion. And it happens in the late 60s into 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. But that temple, grand as it was, what made it a temple is it was the house of God. That's their contextual idea behind temple. That's the cultural idea behind what a temple was. If we're reading the Bible and studying it in context of its culture, that's what the people had. So what was a temple? A temple is an earthly home of the heavenly God. And Solomon's temple itself if you look at the way it, David put it in 1 Chronicles 22, he called for Solomon his son. He charged him to build a house for the Lord. I mean, remember, David's big thing was, man, I got a great house. How do I have a great house as a king? And God's basically being shunted around everywhere. If I'm going to have a great house, God ought to have a great house. God ought to have a greater house than I got. A house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you've shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name. Because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. I mean, like Uriah. Um, but that's what you've got. You've got a house to the Lord, the house of the Lord, a house to the name of the Lord. All of those are the same things. You know, if you look at first Kings 12, 27, it says if these, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, that's English standard version translation. You got it? temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. If you're reading that in Hebrew, temple of the Lord is Beit Adonai. It's house. It's translated temple. The temple's a house. This is God's house. So when I say don't think of a temple as an ancient church, there are some big differences. We go to church, sit in seats, and worship God. But unholy, impure humans didn't go into the temple. They could get to the courts. They could be outside the courts. They could sing. They could worship. And they could offer for sacrifice. But the people didn't go in. And the priests that did go in had to sacrifice and purify themselves before they went in. So you've got Solomon's temple. And you've got passages like Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple where he lived. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, oh dear. Oi. In the Hebrew. 
Literally. Whoa. Oi! Is me. I'm lost. I'm not pure. I shouldn't be in the throne room of God. I shouldn't be in his house. I'm not pure. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. And I've seen the Lord, the King, of the, King, the Lord of hosts. I've been in his home. I'm, I'm here in his presence. Not good. But an angel takes a coal from the fire, the altar, and touches Isaiah to purify him. And says, now you're welcome here. So a temple is the house of God. Now, let's look a little bit at the temple theme in the Bible. And I've got some places where it's obvious. We've been through some already. But there are some other places where we don't readily see it unless we're really digging in for better Bible study. First of all, the temple is there in creation. Creation is given in Genesis 1 and into the first couple of verses of Genesis 2. And it's a seven-day process. Seven is a number of completion. Not just biblically, but in all of the ancient Near Eastern cultures and societies of, that we have much of at all. Uh, seven is a number of completion. And so in seven days, God does it. And on the seventh day, he rests. Now, within its ancient context, this is very important. Because the ancient myths that existed outside of Israel were myths where the gods would create, generally in seven days, not generally, often in seven days, but they would rest once they got people to do the rest of the work because they were wiped out and tired. God doesn't rest because he's wiped out and tired. He rests like he's because he's done. His rest is like the rest in a musical score. You, you finish the note, it's time to rest, and then you get started with the next note. So God's rest is something that in other cultures happened at the end of of the gods creating part and then the gods would have a temple built for them and they would rest in their house in the temple and so moses takes this and and has this divinely by god in a way that's reworked and at the end you know, scholars used to try and say that Genesis 1-1 through 2-2 is one creation story. And then there's a second creation story that's the Garden of Eden. Nonsense. Those two are so linked together it's not even funny. Because the, the, the creation Garden of Eden part of that in Genesis 2-3 is God's garden. God's the one who's walking in the garden when Adam and Eve hear it. This is God's garden. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They're in God's garden. This is God's temple. And you can take creation and you can actually draw it out and show how it it corresponds to a temple. But I think it's better to work backwards in. So you can take the actual temple, take the tabernacle, and you can see creation reflected in them where you've got the the basin for the waters. You've got 
with Solomon's temples, you've got the, found, the, the pillars, which are the foundations of the earth, before you move into where God actually is. And you can chart that. But if you look at Israel's tabernacle as a portable temple, then you start seeing passages like Exodus 40, 33 through 35. This is the one that I told you about the, uh, earlier, we referenced earlier. Erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, set up the screen of the gate, finished the work, cloud covered the tent of meeting, glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Moses not able to enter. Now some of those words may have buzzed in your brain. Because the story of the dedication of the temple, I mean the tabernacle, parallels closely the, the creation of the world account. So in the creation of the world, God enters into his rest at the end of creation. And, and all of creation is his temple. And he's got his garden. And it's a wonderful place until... Adam and Eve bring sin into the temple and they're kicked out of the garden in a very illustrative and metaphorical sense. So you've got seven days of dedication where Moses echoes the seven days of creation as he dedicates the temple, the tabernacle where God's going to dwell. Then you've got these language echoes in the Hebrew. So in Genesis 1.31, it says, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was good. When you read about Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord commanded, and they had done it. If you want to compare the words and see which ones are the same in those two accounts, here they are. God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was good. Moses saw all the work, and behold... As God commanded it, God said do it, they'd done it. Those are echoes over and over of the same vocabulary. If you go to Genesis 2-2 and you continue, On the seventh day God finished his work that he'd done. Exodus 40-33, he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. And those words are using the same language, same words in the Hebrew as you echo one with the other. Next, you roll through, and in the interest of time, I've got to roll through all of that stuff that we rolled through on temple. But now the (laughs) moment happens in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1. John starts out and says, in the beginning, echoing creation, in the beginning was the Word. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is temple talk. This is tabernacle speech. This is Hit the pause button and look at it carefully. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God had established creation to be his his temple. But creation brings sin into it. Adam and Eve bring sin into his temple. And the temple can't coexist with sin. It ain't happening. Got to be pure in the temple. 
God does not inhabit sin, vice, evil, wickedness. That's not his dwelling place. And so you've got now an understanding that in the beginning, let's go back to the very beginning, the word was already here and that word's become flesh and it's dwelt among us. Skeneo is, skeno'o is the verb, isn't it, David? Skeno'o. Skeno'o means, skene is, is a, a, a tent. We get the word scene from it because it was the tent that hung at the back of the theater at the, for the Greek plays. But skene is a tent. Skeno'o is the verb form that basically says to pitch a tent. And that's the verb. I think it's in an aorist form, but that's the verb that's t- dwelt here. It tabernacled. The word God, who was in the beginning, in the beginning, God created, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. God, in the beginning, came and built his own tabernacle. He came to dwell in us. He came to bring his house to us. In Jesus Christ. And if we understand all that the Old Testament taught about the temple, we know that Jesus Christ must be pure or God can't dwell there. So you've got the purity of Christ and you've got God finding the place where he will meet you and I. And so you read these passages And it just makes you start thinking, wow. You remember when Jesus was 12? He goes and gets his bar mitzvah. Goes to the temple. And the whole family and the whole caravan and the whole, you know, hundreds of people from the communities and villages. And they're all leaving together and happy and everything. And Mary and Joseph think Jesus is with Aunt Millie. And Aunt Millie thinks she's with, he's with so-and-so. And they don't know until they get ready to tuck the kids in bed at night. And the kids aren't there. Jesus isn't. And they're like, who left Jesus behind? And they hightail it back to Jerusalem. And find Jesus. And they're scolding him. How? What? You know better than this. We were worried sick. And what does Jesus say? After three days, they found him in the temple where God lives, of sorts. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? The temple's the house. I'm going to be, I'm about the dad's business. He worked from home and everywhere else. And then you've got these passages later. Matthew 21, Jesus goes in and, and, and as he enters the temple, he sees all of these people making profit off of the temple system. They're making money off the Lord's house. They're going into God's house and making it their business center. And so we read in Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers, seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said, it, it is written, my house, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. This is my house. 
you've got a passage where he's he's uh, healing in John 2, doing miracles. And the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple where God abides in human life. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews say, hey, it's taken 46 years to finish this temple with Herod's additions. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. That's where God dwelt. That's where God would meet humanity. Go back to Jacob's dream. The ladder upon which the angels ascend and descend is the cross of Christ. That's the house of God. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he'd said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You get to passages like Paul. Paul says, don't you know, right in the Corinthians, don't you know that y'all are God's temple? You say, y'all? Yes. I translated that this morning. And that is y'all. It is second person plural. And in New York and Grand Rapids, Michigan and England, when they translate there, they say you because they use you. We know better in Lubbock. That's y'all. Because here he's talking about the church. Sometimes he uses, as Greg and I have talked about in emails, he'll use a plural to talk about all y'all, you know, individually. But here he's talking about the church. Don't you know that y'all, the church, are God's temple? You're his house. You're where he's dwelling. You're his arms. You're his feet. You are the body of Christ. Y'all are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in y'all. So don't you go messing up the church. Don't you go charping on each other. Charping's not a word, but it sounded good. It's a combination of chirping and harping. Charping. Don't you go charping on each other. Anyone destroys God's temple, God's house, God will destroy them. God's temple is holy. It's a place of righteousness. It's a place of purity. And y'all are that temple. You're where God is dwelling on earth. You are to be the image of God. People are to look at you and say, that's what God looks like. Or he says, a couple chapters later, now he's still using second person plural, but, but he's talking individually here, I think. Don't you know that your body, your individual body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, how you live. I said this to my buddy, Dr. Bob, one time. He was on a diet, and he was just like stuffing his face with donuts. I looked at him and said, Bob, you're on a diet. And he said, I said, don't you know your body's the temple of God? And he pauses from eating, and he looks at him and says, and you want God to have a small temple? (laughs) 
Paul said in Ephesians 2, for through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In Christ, we have that access. He is our temple. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It's oikos, which is a Greek word for house, but the house of God is the temple in the Old Testament. It's the theme. It's it's not saying this is precise, but it's to bring those temple images and ideas built on the foundation, the house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see how this is the temple hermeneutic? Do you see how knowing this temple background makes parts of that highlighted we can pause and look at it and you just start looking you know dwelling place for god by the spirit we're growing into a holy temple now it continues you get into revelation i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away this impure earth this earth of now sin and yuckiness that Paul says is groaning in travail for the earth to be born again. A new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. We'll talk about this on Love Story. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The dwelling of God is with people. And he will dwell with them. I didn't see a temple in the city. Because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb in the New Jerusalem. We are the temple of God. He dwells with us eternally. So that's just a work through some of the biblical themes, temple themes in the Bible. Let's uh, finish up with our points for home. So here they are. If I could urge you to do anything, and if you're watching this on the internet or if you're in here live, I want to encourage you to see your value. Some of us see our sin, see our errors, see our mistakes, because there's plenty of those for all of us to look at. And we let that define us when it should not. Because God made us to dwell with him. And when we blew it, He went out to redeem, to rescue, to fix the problem at his own personal expense. 
And if we understand how valuable we are, first of all, I think it changes the way we treat ourselves. We don't become arrogant and haughty. Our value is seen in reference to the Almighty One. But if He loves you that much, heaven forbid I don't love you. And if He loves me that much, heaven forbid I don't love me. I mean, we, we've got to get away from the idea that, that we're nothing. We are children of the King of kings, Lord of lords, whose Holy Spirit dwells within us, seeking to restore us to the glory He promises one day to bring to us. And we have proof of it in the resurrection of Jesus. God so loved you and me that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but live eternally. So I want us to see our value, but I also want us in this to see our need. Because all of the value that God made us is value that desperately needs a savior that definitely needs purification. Not just outer, gee, I'm going to wash and wash my hair and put on clean clothes. I'm talking about deep inside cleansing. Purification. That takes all of your sin and destroys it in terms of its impact on you. By fully paying the price on Calvary. Woe is me. I'm a man lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Yeah, yeah. I see the need. But I can't leave the need without also seeing the destiny. Because the promise is that God will dwell with us again. He fixes all of this. We come to him And we say, Lord, I trust you to fix all of this. I desperately need to be purified to dwell in the house of the Lord. To be the house of the Lord. To have your spirit within me. And I don't have that purity on my own. So Lord, give me the purity of Jesus. I trust in him and you for that. And the transposition in Jesus' name that happens when we pray like that is the Holy Spirit setting up shop and we are the temple, the dwelling place of God. That's your better Bible study this week. Now get yourself ready for next week. I'm going to try and do more than just one subject. But we got to do the biblical themes of sacrifice, love story, and giving. And I've mixed up the order because I don't know which order I'll do them. God bless you. I'll see you next Sunday.